So I'm just going to ask you now just to turn in your Bibles. We've been looking at Daniel, and we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. We just started with Daniel 1 last week, but now we're going to go into Daniel chapter 2. And so we read that in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever! Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once again they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plea for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we've asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, who the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man from among the elders of Judah, from the exiles of Judah, 
who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you are lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other loving men, other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there stood before you a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay and the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, And the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. 
the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. And we thank God and pray that he'll give us today understanding of his word. Just to, to say that at the close of the service this morning, we're going to gather round the Lord's table. We're going to gather in together. Just say the folk upstairs, if you want to come down, that'll be great. But if not, if you'd gather together, uh, gather close so that people can serve easily. And then after that, we'll go through the back for a cup of tea and coffee and a chance to get to know one another. So I hope everybody will be able to stay to that. But let's just come now and pray. Father, I want to thank you again for your word and we thank you for the living power of your Holy Spirit, for the wisdom of men and for all else that you've blessed us with that can help us to interpret this word. But Lord, we need an openness in our heart if this word is to be applied and lived out, we need to be ready to hear and to obey you. Lord, may that be true of all of your people gathered here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the following, I've been told, is, is contained within the instruction manual of a major world organisation. That's what I've been told. You can judge. But the title of the relevant page is What to Do When Threatened by an anaconda. One, do not run. An anaconda is faster than you and running will simply excite it. Excite it? Anyway. Two, lie flat on the ground. Three, put your arms tight by your side, your legs tightly together. Four, the snake will now come and nudge you and begin to move over you, exploring your body. Five, do not panic. <laughs> Six, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet up. It's always from the feet up. Seven, now the snake will slowly begin to suck you into its body. Great. Eight. When it gets to your knees, take out your knife, slide it into the gap between your knees and the snake's mouth, and quickly and forcibly sever the snake's head. Nine. Be sure your knife is sharp. <laughs> Ten, be double sure you have a knife. <laughs> Just be prepared. Now, we're not likely to have to deal with an anaconda here in Hamilton, or who knows the way things are going, but all of us in our lives, even here, will have to face, at times, frightening, difficult, and close to impossible, at times, circumstances. The question is, when those circumstances come around in your life, when they hit your life, 
How are you going to deal with them? Where are you going to turn to? These are the kind of questions we're going to try and look at today in Daniel chapter 2. Where we've got set out before us in this chapter are two main options in life when scary situations seem to threaten to overwhelm us. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2, beginning by looking first at the despot. And of course, here we're looking at at Nebuchadnezzar. We could have called him a tyrant, because it means just about the same. We could have called him the crackpot, because that would certainly fit. But for my purposes, because I'm into D's today, we're going to call him Nebuchadnezzar, the despot. And our dear despot, Nebuchadnezzar, was having a bit of a problem. His sleep was being troubled to a wee soul. Night after night, he was having dreams. That when he woke up in the morning, left him feeling insecure, uneasy. Now just to say that in purely practical terms, this problem itself is an extremely relevant one for us today. For a little while ago I heard on the radio that the average person in 21st century Scotland is getting two hours, it's reckoned, less sleep per night than our forebears did. And sleep deprivation, that is problems with getting to sleep and then with staying asleep on everything ranging from a nightly basis to two or three nights per week, that this is something that's reckoned to affect around two-thirds of the population to the extent that this is now seen as a major health problem, something that's affecting the physical and the mental, the emotional health of the nation leading to all sorts of problems in, in relationships, accidents at work, accidents at home, etc., etc. The roots of Nebuchadnezzar's problem here, though, isn't too difficult, really, to discern. For you see, his empire was at this point at the height of its power. However, this had brought problems along with it because historical evidence outside the Bible tells us that around this time, Nebuchadnezzar was having to deal with a number of rebellions on the far borders of his empire. So you see, this empire that he'd fought so hard to win was now proving incredibly difficult to hold on to. Nebuchadnezzar's basic problem then, because of his sleeplessness, that which gave him his bad dreams, at least from a, a human perspective, was his insecurity. That was his root problem. And Reinhold Niebuhr, a very well-known theologian and thinker in the post-war period, he says here, he says that man is tempted by the basic insecurity of human existence to try to make himself doubly secure. And so he grasps after position, fame, wealth and power. But the more he attains and the higher he climbs, the more basically insecure he feels his position. For the more terrible his fall could be. Therefore, the more he attains, the more desperately and anxiously he is then driven to strive to attain. And so we have that vicious cycle which produces the modern dictator and which forces the dictator in his role to become more and more harsh, brutal, angry, and suspicious. But you, know, you don't have to be a dictator fearing the loss of your empire before you find yourself in the place where your basic human insecurity 
seems in danger of being overwhelmed by the problems of life. No, nor are sleepless nights and bad dreams the only safe indicators that this is actually happening in our life. You see, so many people in our day, as they have been throughout history, so many people are plagued by insecurity. What's life all about? Where's it going? How can I make sure that my life is significant? How can I make sure that my life has got real, true meaning? And people then decide, in the society we live in today, that life is about money, or life is about power. That life is about career, or life is about success, or that life is about relationships. Life is about marriage and family. And we could go on and on. And they they search for security. They try and build the security in all these areas. Sometimes they're frustrated by their failure. Often they are worried that what they have might in an instant be taken away from them. And at times they're devastated, as this indeed does happen. And all the while, the niggling question eats away at the hearts and at the minds of so many. Is what I'm building my life on, is what I'm devoting my life to pursuing, really what life is all about? Is there nothing more to life than this? And out of this pressure cooker of worry, of doubt, of insecurity, that's often disguised and hidden, but still it's there. What we find emerging from this, what we see are the symptoms of this. Greed, guilt, anxiety. Leading to anger, to addictions, to broken marriage, broken families and broken homes. Now Nebuchadnezzar, when his insecurities because of life's pressures began to break through into his life, manifest themselves and these dreams that disturbed his sleep and drained his energy, well, he turned to the experts of his day to seek to find answer to his problems, to seek to find a cure for his anxiety. He turned to these, verse 1, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Now, you know, it's interesting that historical research, archaeology, stuff like that, has uncovered the fact that these astrologers, what they did was they kept volume upon volume of dreams, records of dreams, and of all the different events that followed these dreams. And then they arranged them all systematically for reference. And they believed that there were laws that governed dreams. So you see, when somebody important like Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, then all you had to do was turn through your reference book, go back in history, find another important person who'd had the same or a similar dream, find out what then had happened to them, and hey presto, you've got the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But the problem is that it would seem that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't or wouldn't recall the details of his dream. However, he's not the kind of man you see who thinks that the rules that apply to ordinary people should apply to him. So if these experts are really magicians, if they're really astrologers, then they should be able to tell him he believes not only what his dream means, but what his dream actually was. And as we see, he wants this done, and he wants it done now. 
He won't stand for any waffle. He sees that as just time wasting, a way of trying to avoid the issue. He knows when these men do this that they're just trying to keep him talking, hoping maybe that he'll forget what it was all about at the start. You see, that's just not Nebuchadnezzar. He is a despot. He is a tyrant. He's a man who's used to getting his own way. He's that kind of man who, when he says jump, the only question he expects you to ask is, how high? Now, he does offer these, these men a wee bit of a carrot and a stick, but when you realise, as these astrologers themselves say, that it was impossible for them to do what the king asked, and that they couldn't even risk trying to bluff it because they didn't know how much or how little he actually remembered, well, this wasn't really that much of a carrot. And Nebuchadnezzar's stick was no idle threat, let me say, because certainly that there's evidence from this period that punishments just like this were carried out. That people were dismembered, their houses were torn down, their families were killed, and everything was thrown into a pile, was burned with this area, then being used as the town latrine. Remember what we said last week? Nebuchadnezzar was the kind of boss who when he terminated you, he terminated you. There was no employment tribunal around then to appeal to. Now in a little while, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the response of both these astrologers and of Daniel to this scary situation, this seemingly impossible challenge that was laid before them. But before we go into that, I want to move on just for a few minutes from the despot Nebuchadnezzar to look at the dream, to look at the details that he, that of this dream that he had, and in particular, Daniel's interpretation of it. Now, we're not going to be able to be absolutely precise because the nature of the, the style of writing that, that we find here makes that well nigh impossible because there's always room for further fulfillment down the line that there may be more to come. But here, Nebuchadnezzar's empire is symbolized in this dream by a huge statue made of gold, silver, and bronze. It's mighty. It's powerful and impressive, just as his empire is. However, it's not stable. It cannot last last for long because it rests on feet of clay and iron. It rests on feet that soon will crumble and will give way. So Nebuchadnezzar's empire then will not last for long, as indeed was the case, because soon after his death, his empire that at this time seemed invincible was swept away. But then we're told three other empires will follow his. Each different in their own way, each more or less outstanding. All of these empires, though, like Nebuchadnezzar's, will be swept away. They will not last. They will be destroyed by a kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom symbolized in verse 34 by a rock not cut out by human hands. Now, you know, it's interesting that if we start with Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire, that then in world history, three empires followed that. The Persian, the Greek, and then the Roman Empire. Now, if we take the Roman Empire as the final empire of this four, and what could be more apt description of that empire than what the one we find in verse 40, 
that finally there will be an empire, a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, for iron breaks and destroys everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Well then, if we take that, then what can the kingdom that then comes, the kingdom that will endure forever, what can that kingdom be, verse 44, that the God of heaven will set up, that will never be destroyed? What can this kingdom be? other than the kingdom of God. That kingdom ushered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who we're actually told in 1 Peter uh, 2 is a rock, a stone that will make men stumble and a rock that will make them fall. And you see, what we have to remember here is that Daniel was written some 500 years or so before the birth of Christ. This is prophesying what is to come. This was written before these empires came and fell. But you know, it's also still, I think, so relevant for us today. Because you see, throughout human history, human empires, human kingdoms have come and gone. And at different points in history, each one in turn has seemed so mighty, has seemed to be invincible. But each one in the end falls. Because each one has their feet of clay. Each one has their weaknesses. Each one is swept away by their successor in one way or another. And you see men, as we look on, we see only what's happening on the human level. We just see the politics and the wars, the interaction between men. But you see, behind all this, behind what's happening at the human level, stands God. And it's God who ultimately holds the nations and the empires of this world in his hands. And behind all that we see going on at the human level, it's God who is directing the course of human history. It's he who's sweeping away empires. It's he who's using the actions of empires and their leaders to prepare the way for the final fulfillment of his kingdom that then will endure forever. That kingdom that broke into this world in Jesus Christ and that will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes again. Well, we've looked at the despot, we've looked at the dream. Let's finish by looking at the difference. That is the difference that there is in their response between the world's magicians and astrologer and Daniel and his friends to the scary situation that Nebuchadnezzar put them in. Well, we've already covered much of this world's experts' reaction to this. That is, faced by this challenge, denied access to their dream books, today's equivalent maybe being, I don't know, the horoscope column or Old Moore's Almanac, remember that, that book of predictions based on astrology that's actually been published in Britain since 1697 but denied access to their so-called worldly wisdom, these men look within. And they've got no answers. And they then panic and finally despair. What I, I believe we have to face up to is that today, when they're faced with scary situations, when they're faced with big challenges, impossible situations, 
that so many people still today turn to the not-so-distant relatives of these magicians and enchanters of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, people still turn to their horoscope page, or they turn to their astrologer, or maybe today to their new age guru. From the most powerful people to the most humble in the land, people increasingly today are turning and putting their trust in stranger and stranger things. You know, Ronald and Nancy Nate Reagan regularly consulted an astrologer during their time in the White House. And more up to date, Barack Obama used to, I believe still does, carry around with him a Hanuman idol. That's an image of the Indian monkey god, a, a hangover from his contact with Indonesia, in Indonesia, sorry, with Hinduism during his childhood. He also, interestingly, carries a locket with a picture of Mary and the baby Jesus. So he's covering all his bases then. But you see, if people don't turn this way, then in our TV-dominated age, the current experts for many are the chat show hosts. Now in the UK at present, probably the, the king of them all, the premier chat show host is, is Jeremy Kyle. And he alternately advises and lambasts vulnerable, vulnerable, often inadequate people. But you know, the actual facts are that his life is actually a bigger mess than most of theirs. In recent years, he's gambled, he's, sorry, he's battled a gambling addiction. His second wife recently has left him and he's now moved on to a relationship with the former nanny of his children. But you see, all this isn't really too surprising. Because when you strip away everything else, the advice that people like him seem to give, what they actually say is, you know, just do whatever you think's right. That's what people say today. Follow your heart. And you'll be okay. And initially, it sounds appealing. But can you see what's actually really being said there? What this is about is a license for selfishness and for self-indulgence. This is a recipe. Follow your heart for people to be ruled by greed and lust. And what this actually produces is what we see around us today. A hurting, broken society full of people who are the casualties of others following their hearts. You know, the Bible's view is actually very, very different. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That in the end, the heart is sinful. And that if we follow our hearts, we'll get into sin and disasters. You see, the experts of today the sorcerers and astrologers of our tv age they've got no more to say when faced by the scary impossible situations of life than did nebuchadnezzar contrast this though with daniel's response he didn't panic rather he showed composure as he went straight to the man who'd been charged with executing the wise men of Babylon. And he questioned him, verse 14 says, with wisdom and tact. Wisdom. That's about seeking to do the right thing. Tact. Which is about then doing it in the right way. And Daniel then, he listened 
to what this man had to say. He took time to listen, and it's so important when we're faced with situations and challenges that seem important. We've got to seek to listen. We've got to take time to try to understand what's going on, not just listen physically, but also, far more importantly, we've got to listen spiritually. We've got to listen in the sense of seek to discern in your spirit, by God's word, by the spirit, to discern what's actually going on in a situation. What behind it all the Lord's doing and why he might be doing. And Daniel didn't despair as the astrologers had done. No, he acted with courage as he went to the king and asked him for time to interpret this dream. Now, for those of us here who maybe feel that we definitely you know, part company with Daniel at this point, because never mind life-threatening challenges, but big challenges, big problems in life of any kind, frighten us to death. If that's the way you feel, then here I think is an important distinction that you need to get hold of. That is, courage isn't about facing challenges with an absence of fear. It's not that, that's more like insanity. No, courage is about facing challenges by overcoming our fear. Courage is about knowing fear, but about still holding on and going on to do what needs to be done. You know, recently I, I read a book uh, about that group of American paratroopers during the Second World War, a TV program about it, the Band of Brothers. But this is what their commanding officer wrote in his diary at the end of D-Day. He says, I did not forget to get on my knees and thank God for helping me to live through this day and ask him for his help on D-Day plus one. You see, courage isn't about an absence of fear. It's about overcoming fear and going on. And what happens next here shows that, that Daniel too, that he was able to do this. He was able to overcome fear, to face the challenges life brought because he knew who to turn to in times of trouble. So first, he sought out his friends, and then together, they sought God. As simple as that, that's what they did. They seek God, they plead with God, they don't turn anywhere else. They plead with God for insight and mercy. Verse 18, Daniel urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed. Now, in chapter 1, it said there in chapter 1 that Daniel and his friends were wiser than all others. Well, here, in this instant, we find demonstrated the kind of things that made them wiser, that makes wise men and women. That is, they realized that impossible situations need divine intervention. They realized that God-sized challenges need God-sized solutions. So they were in an impossible situation. There was nothing they could do about it. Their very survival was under threat. And so where did they turn to? They turned to God. I want to ask you a question today. What about you? Where do you turn when there seems to be no answer to your situation? When there seems to be no way out do you turn to this world do you look there for answers to your situation 
Do you just follow your heart? Do you just do what you think is right? Or do you seek out Christian fellowship and wise Christian counsel? Do you turn to God's word? And above all, do you seek the Lord? Do you turn to him? You know, all that we've said at the individual level applies at the church level, I think, as well. Because I believe we've got great potential here as a church. And I believe that we've got a, a real opportunity in the future to do something in our community that will last for years to come. We can do that if we step out in faith. Rather than huddling together and settle for the status quo, just settle for mediocrity. But you know, as we step out in faith, then we will face big challenges. We will face impossible situations. We will be taken beyond ourselves and our own abilities because that's what faith does. That's where faith takes you. The question is then, what are we going to do when that happens? Where are we going to turn? Are we going to turn in on ourselves when those challenges come? Are we going to panic and despair and decide that this is beyond us? Or are we going to turn in on one another and blame each other as an expression of our insecurity and fear? Or are we going to turn to God? Are we going to see all that faces us, big as it might be, as a challenge where God again can reveal his greatness and his glory? Psalm 50, 15 says, it says, call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Is that God's word promise today? Are you ready today to turn to God, to put him to the test, as Daniel and his friends did? Are you ready to do that? Because let me say it again, the only way we will be able to face and overcome impossible problems and scary situations is as we turn to God. And you know, even Nebuchadnezzar, found comfort here in this. Because I don't know about you, but I would, I would certainly think that the news that Daniel brought him of his kingdom's coming collapse, I would have thought that this would have enraged him. But it doesn't. Because while he certainly doesn't come to faith here, his later actions make that clear. Yet the awareness of the eternal that here Daniel shares with him the sense of the glory and the majesty of God that is brought to him and the fact that his earthly kingdom has a part to play in the coming of God's eternal kingdom. In some way, this seems to bring him peace. This deals with his insecurity. It deals with his fear. You know, the same can be true for you today. Corrie Tim Boom, that Dutch Christian lady who bore such a glorious witness to the gospel among the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps in the Second World War, she once said that when you face an impossible challenge, if you look around, you'll get distressed. If you look within, you'll become depressed. But if you look above, you'll soon find yourself at rest. Let's look above now. Let's come to God. Father, you know our hearts and you know our situations. You know the challenges that we face individually, the challenges that we face as a church. And 
you know what we're like in our humanity and our weakness. It's so easy to look within ourselves. It's so easy to look to other places to find answers. But Lord, help us to know that ultimately you're the one who is our hope. You're the one who we turn to. You're the one who holds us. You're the one who can bring us through. And you're the one who will walk with us every step of the way through whatever challenge we face this day. Lord, be with your people. Bring a sense of your glory into their hearts. Bring a sense of your comfort to them in their need, their sorrow and distress. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.